Hi, my name is David Speed. And I'm Adam Brazier. And this is the Creative Rebels podcast. Featuring inspirational stories and practical advice from some of the most prolific and successful creators in the world. Adam and I have co-founded multiple creative businesses and turned our varied passions into our careers. There's never been a better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people will tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to show you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Hello. We've got some big news, haven't we? We've got some very exciting news. We're going to start doing Rebel of the Week on Instagram. Yeah, so what this means is we're going to be keeping our eyes open for people that are inspiring us. People are using hashtag Creative Rebels. Any accounts that we find that we think are making cool work, then we are going to do a little feature on our stories uh, on a Sunday. So we're going to post up someone who is making cool work and they will be the Rebel of the Week. So use hashtag Creative Rebels for a chance to be featured. Yes, we are watching you right now. Well, your posts anyway. Yeah. Yep, it's going to be a nice way to uh, feature some work that we're that we're into because every now and then between ourselves, we'll go like, oh, did you see so-and-so? Yeah, yeah. Did you see this thing? And it was really cool. And like, yeah, why not share that conversation with everyone? So that is what we are going to be doing. I have to apologize. What have you done? What have you done again? This episode, I was very sick during and our editor has been through and tried to get rid of as many of my coughs as possible, but there are still some very audible coughs. <laughs> and I know that some people, this free content that we give them, they still complain when things like coughs happen. But don't worry, you're not going to catch anything. Yes. Yeah, so if coughing offends you, then please switch off the podcast now. But the you will be making a huge mistake because this is one of our best episodes this is such a good episode like going through so at the end of every episode david will go and listen through to it and make clips of like highlights of the episode this has got so many little gems it's such a good episode yeah i emailed them over to you and you were like bloody hell there's yeah. a lot of clips there because <laughs> that means more work for adam because he yep. has to um, find those clips and then turn them into wonderful videos um speaking of videos we are on youtube so if that's just kind of thing, watching podcasts rather than listening to them, then uh, find Creative Rebels on YouTube. Yeah, we put our video every Monday now, so keep in touch. So here's one of the hardest questions we've ever been asked. Oh, God. Um, what do you do when you turn your passion into your business and you're doing your passion for work? Could you like, can your passion run out? And because you're working for it and all of a sudden you've, you're doing the thing that you used to love, that you used to use to escape work, now it is your work. Well, I suppose there's like two ways to look at it. So the first way is kind of you started a business doing something that you love. You, then you've grown to a stage where you have to start employing people and then you end up doing all the management side of things. So you stop doing any of the fun stuff anymore that you got into it to do initially. Yeah, I suppose that, yeah. So if you're, let's just take photography. So if you're yeah. taking photos, then you no longer have a chance to actually take photos. Yeah, you just start to manage the studio. You start to manage a team of photographers and then go out and do stuff. And yes, you might be making more money, but you can easily fall out of love with the profession because you're not doing it anymore. Yeah, I I mean, so I suppose I write that into my contract. I mean, we don't have a contract, but it's like, you know that I need to paint. Yeah. And so that's why I was in Holland for a couple of weeks painting giant barges is because I like I probably would have been more use here working because there's that thing, isn't there? Work on your business, not in your business. Yeah. And I probably would have been better off here working on the businesses. But instead, 
I love painting, man. And when it's just things like that, like when someone comes to us and says, we want you to paint a bar, like four barges. And these things are gigantic. Like, I mean, I know some 40 meters long each. So yeah, when you think barge, if you're thinking of canal barge, these are like sea barges that can go across the ocean. Yeah. Like when we heard about it, I thought like, you know, those little houseboats that you get going along the canal. I thought it was going to be one of those, but like, no, we're talking big ocean liner things. And if you follow me on Instagram, you would have seen it on my stories. Like the things are absolutely huge. I like walked underneath a boat. But like when that opportunity comes in, I'm like, of course, I'm going to go to Holland and start painting on boats. Like, because that's what I love to do. And yeah. I have to do it. So sorry, I'm I'm out. <laughs> Whereas I suppose for me, it's a complete flip side because like I've always been a creative person. And then like to keep the business running, I had to stop being creative. I had to start doing the things that like marketing and things that weren't so fun. But then I managed to find something outside of work with photography that was something that had no pressure. I didn't have to make money from it. It wasn't a business. It's just there to just have as a passion. And I think if you start a business doing whatever your passion is, you need to make sure you've got a hobby to have outside of that too. Otherwise, you might fall out of love with all the things that you're doing. And then, yeah, you're lost. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, you're not going to have time to to do both. And And it's funny. So when I was in Holland... I'm, I'm out there with like a bunch of artists we're all st- staying in this like amazing airbnb um in rotterdam like uh, on the water basically it was a really incredible place and every evening like everyone's sitting around and having sketchbook sessions and i joined in in one sketchbook session because the rest of the time i was working mm. and they didn't really understand and they were like why aren't you sketching with us and i was like i've got work to do like you don't really understand like this it consumes me like because i've been painting these barges I now have to catch up at night. So um, that was when I was taking the time. But like, so running your own business obviously takes so much time. And I mean, we've had this discussion before, but like find a nine to five where you're working for a company and your your passions align with the vision that they have. And then, but at five o'clock you can go home and yeah. do something fun. Like that, really, that is the dream because having your own business, I mean, it might just be in you because for us it's in us and yeah, we couldn't yeah. do anything else. But like it does mean that you do sacrifice a lot of a lot of time. So I think it's important that when you do start something, if you're starting it because you're passionate about a thing, that you always make sure that you keep a bit of that to yourself. Like when you employ, because when we employed, it was to, oh, we'd get people to just kind of like help on other things rather than thinking like, well, what actually do I want to do? And then employ, actually, well, I could employ a boss for myself. I could employ someone who's going to manage this above me. I don't have to always be the person at the top. I know Steve Wozniak, when Apple kind of got to a certain size, he was like, I want to be chief engineering officer or something of that title. And he was like, I never want my pay to go above this. I never want to go above this level because I love the engineering side of it. That's what I love doing. And you, Steve Jobs, can go and run the company and make it this amazing thing. But for me, I need to stay with what I'm passionate about. And even though he was one of the founders, his level in the company only ever rose so high because he chose that. I think people just really need to look at what they really want because I think a lot of people don't actually know what they want. And once you've worked that out, everything is figure outable. You can then put measures in place to make that happen. So whether it's sacrificing doing something important in your business so that you're still doing the thing that keeps you alive, like not being able to do the other thing, but letting someone else do that for Mm -hmm. you. Or whether it's just having a creative pursuit that you do evenings and weekends. Because I think, I mean, we've talked before about how important creativity is to mental health. And thank you to the listener that sent over all all of the articles of that was kind of backing that up. 
of the studies that have been done to prove that. So that means even if you've got a creative business, still make sure you are being creative because otherwise like you're just going to suffer. Don't allow yourself to fall out of love. That's the thing, isn't it? It's like if that's the thing that that you do truly love, then really try and keep hold of that and remember the reasons why that's the thing that you that you're really passionate about. So I think loving what you do is really, really important. And like whether that is working in a job, having your creative thing on the side or having a creative job that you always try and keep a bit of creativity in there. Keep whatever it is you love about it as your job because it's your business, like you're the one in control of this. And I think this week's guest, Bruce Daisley, is very good at telling people how to enjoy their work. Yeah, we sat down with the absolute legend that is Bruce Daisley. And as we mentioned, there's so many, literally I just clipped so much from this episode. There's so much packed into here. So um, yeah, if you enjoy it, let us know. Cool. So let's get into the episode. So Bruce Daisley is the former vice president of Twitter for Europe, Middle East and Africa. He was there for eight years and he was instrumental in the growth of the social media network. And during that time, he developed a real interest in work, work dynamics, how teams function together. And that interest led him on to writing his book, The Joy of Work, and to launching his podcast, which is called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Interestingly, Bruce has actually just left his role at Twitter and is now taking some time off and launching the paperback version of the book here in the UK and launching the book over in the States where it will be going under the title Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. In this episode, we talk about work-life balance, hating your job and happy people. I don't make the rules. That's just like the, the evidence is if you spend time around positive, happy people, then you become po- more positive and happier. Bruce. Hello there, how are you doing? Welcome for, to our show. Yeah. I made the mistake <laughs> of just trying to check out what microphone you were using as we were going live, which is a podcaster's sort of folly. Yeah. Every time you go somewhere, you're like, oh, right, they're using Rode NTs. Okay. Like, you immediately start doing it. I should have done that before we sat well, down. Well, I tell you what, Bruce, if you go to our Instagram, at Rebels Create, you will see in the story section, we have a story highlight, highlight of all of the uh, equipment that we use for right. podcast. Okay. Very useful. You can flip through that later if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find exactly the same thing, though, because I do photography. And whenever I walk around and see any camera, no matter who I'm talking to or whatever, I'll, I'll just kind of like drift away yeah. and kind of like, oh, what is that? And I don't know, like, don't know what it is. But you know what? Like, the, the one that always inspired me, I love going to gigs. Gigs is my, like my passion, yeah. my escape, my everything. But there used to be a time, and it's different now, there used to be a time where the person in front of you was always taking photographs, and their photographs on whatever they were using <laughs> looked legit compared to what you... It's like, hang on, what are they doing to get... Yeah. Like, in the old days when you had a point and shoot, and then when it was your, your phone, it's like, hang on... This woman in front of me is capturing shadow, nuance, a lighting, and I'm just getting like this vague <laughs> extra sketch impression of Frank Ocean being up there somewhere. Yeah. So crazy. Right. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask you, Bruce, is um, could you tell us about your first ever CV? Yes. So um so what happened was that I was I I went to university, uh didn't really, I think sort of the biggest failing if you if you're from outside of London, it's especially hard. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I had like this vague idea that I wanted to 
Uh, well, initially going to law because it seemed like a, a job you see on telly. I had, you know, I turned up to some interviews with legal firms and it was pretty evident to them. I'd done no research into, <laughs> into what a lawyer did. I remember one interview where I spent the whole time talking about Coronation Street, which was probably an error. Uh, but then I, I sort of was set about thinking I've got to get a job and I... I um and I tried writing to some places and got no response. And I did a four-page cartoon CV. And by cartoon CV, I mean sort of like the Beano comic strip sort of four pages. To be fair, of a 22-year-old, four pages was really cut. It was lengthy, you know. Like I didn't have a lot of life story to get in there. But I got this. I did this four-page CV, and it um it transformed my experience. So I used to send it. I decided at this point, like, my obsession is pop music, my obsession is music, I'm just going to try and get a job in, in those places. So I went to the library, I got all of the lists of record companies in London and sent it to 50 record companies. Um, and I got people phoning me up. Uh, people quite often in, in the sort of, it was in the 90s, but people phoning me up after long liquid lunches, like, <laughs> dude, this is the most incredible thing. It's like, you know, these, and I'd sent it to, art, to label of artists I loved. So someone phoning me up from, you know, this this artist's label was like, unbelievable. It, it, there were no jobs in record companies, so I ended up using it. I got a job at Capital Radio for a bit. But I always go, I often go into schools and sort of say to kids, you know, actually getting people's attention is a lot easier than you think. But you've got to just understand the quid pro quo of like the... There's got to be something in it for them. But if you get someone emotionally invested in you... It's incredibly powerful. So, so like I found when I went to Capital Radio, um, the the woman who interviewed me told me because she became a colleague after she gave me a job. But um, she said you were terrible at the interview. You were absolutely abject at the interview. But we had three entry level jobs. The other two were really good, and that your CV had gone around the office. So everyone was like, you got to get Cartoon Boy in. When's Cartoon Boy in? <laughs> When's he in? And so, um, and that became, that became the thing that in everyone's head, I was Cartoon Boy and I was starting there. And so I always, I was chatting to someone recently and, you know, entry level, what can I do? It's like, okay, well, look, firstly, try and tell your story in the most captivating way possible. But the first thing that most people do when they apply for a job is they, what do they do? What websites do they go to? Google. What do they type in? CV. Is it any wonder that every job application looks exactly the same? Yeah. And I'm not saying don't do that, um, you know, but have that as the backup and then do something that's a bit more expressive of you, yeah. creative of you, you know, more likely to divide people. So no doubt a lot of the people I sent that cartoon CV to thought that's not appropriate and put it in the bin. But I just needed sort of probably 30% of them got in touch with me, which no one had ever got in touch with me before. Um, so, you know, it, I always think that, that CV changed my life. And in fact, I was thinking the other day, um, so I, I was living as, I'd gone to university a year without work. I was thinking, wow, if I go... If I go a whole year, I, like I was working bars, I was working in restaurants. Mm. I was like, if I go a whole year, I'm never going to get a job. And like, I, I was I, just thinking the other day, what fine lines there are between success and failure, you know, that I could have very easily thought, okay, my job now is that I'm going to work my way up in a bar. That's what I'm going to do. And that could have been, at 24, I could have been, you know, an assistant manager of a bar, and that would have been a degree of success. But... Um, it's just amazing the fine lines, really. And so I always think that CV was one thing that catalyzed that. 
What gave you the inspiration for that CV? I'd always loved comics as a kid, and I think I saw in a at the careers centre, yeah. sort of flipping through. I'd seen something where someone had sent something which was had a bit of illustration on it, and so I thought, okay, that's not a bad idea. Why don't I do something like that? And and I'm definitely I sort of I'm a five out of ten artist, but I used to love comic strips, beanos and things as a kid, and so I used to draw them repetitively and so while I'm not necessarily a good artist if you ask me to draw what we've got here it would be embarrassing but I know specifically how to work to my to my flaws my weaknesses and so I knew that I could draw something like that it reminds me of a story I heard years ago of a band I can't remember which band it was but um, to get their demo tape heard and they they just thought through the process of okay every day and this was in the 90s every day the record label is going to get all these cassette these demo cassette tapes and they they open up their their mail and then they just sit in this in this pile of for someone maybe the intern to go and listen to at some point but really your tape's not getting listened to and so they they pictured that whole process and then they decided to put their demo tape inside a rubber glove so that when you delve into the bag to, to pull the tapes out, you'd feel this weird rubber glove. And their their tape got listened to like hundreds of times yeah. more than all of the other tapes that were just in a normal, this is what you do. You put it in a normal standard envelope, you put a stamp on it, you post it. And it's just thinking that, yeah. dif- that different way of like capturing people's attention. And I think, you know, there's a danger in some of these stories that they become survivors, survivors by us. So we only hear the successful ones. My point always with this is, you know, and so what I often say to, if I go to schools and tell that story, I actually got a job offer from Virgin Records. I got a job offer from Virgin Records to be the postboy. Loads of people start as the postboy, work my way up. And they said to me on the, the day they offered me the job, they said, um, so you, you just need to drive down to Labrook Grove Post Office every day in our transit van, collect the mail. And I said, fantastic. Just one point, I don't have a driver's license, but... Um, in the past, I've taken an accelerated two-week course. I'm going to take another one of them for the next two weeks. And if I fail my test, I'll give you the job back to give it to someone else. And if I pass my test, I'll, I'll start in three weeks' time. I mean, talk, talk about setting myself yeah, a logistical definitely. challenge. Anyway, I failed my driving test. So my point is always, you know, I did all the hard stuff. I got all the way there. Mm. My CV cut through. Then I failed my driving test. And so I had to give the job back to them. Um and probably, you know, it, it's just a good reminder. Try something original. If that doesn't work, what's your next idea? What's your next idea? Whereas I suspect a lot of us would say, oh, I tried the cartoon CV, it didn't work. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Rather, than, what's your next thing? What's your next thing? Because I remember years ago now, I'm getting a, someone sent a CV that looked like a London tube map. And I was like, Amazing. oh, that's quite cool. But like, it was just, it wasn't done well enough right. to make me actually really impressed with it. And... I remember thinking like, oh, I like what they're trying to do yeah. there, but it's not wowed me. But I suppose that's the, that's it, isn't it? It's like keep keep going, keep trying other things. Because yeah. it's like something will catch someone. Like, look, it hit me who was a designer, so I'd be way more critical. Yes. If that hit someone else who wasn't into design, might look at that and think, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing ever. Absolutely. So it's like, don't give up just because it's not worked the first time because yeah. you don't know who it's actually hit and who it's going to resonate with. And it's amazing, the, the power of exactly that, the power of like good ideas. If you, if you go, I, I search this quite often. If you go to Interactive CV, if you search Interactive CV, you'll get the top result is this um, web developer and he built this computer game of his CV. Um, 
And it's like, if you scroll, the character is like a Mario character and he scrolls through, if you sort of page right or page down, he scrolls through various things and it triggers like his level of animation on various things. And it's just, and he's left it up there. He's got a job now. He's, he's had a job for 10 yeah. years. But he's left it up there as this as this archive. Or if you go to YouTube, there's three or four amazing uh, CVs on YouTube that are quite creative. There's one called CVIV, CV in video. So if anyone's watching this now, they can look at that. It's not the best, like um, the moment you look at it, you go, "Okay, I can see twenty ways this could be better." But it's that it's that when when a new idea pops with you, you're like, "Ah, oh, I see so many opportunities yeah. from this." So that guy who did the CVIV, um, he was in the early days of YouTube. I was working at YouTube, and uh, I, I contacted him. It's done about half a million views now, and I think he would accept, you know, these these strengths and weaknesses to it. But it's that it's the originality of being assailed. It's like um, the conjunction of two ideas. They've taken something traditional like a CV, yeah. they've mixed it with something else, and we're just programmed to be delighted when things like that happen. I think. Yeah, we had a really good CV come in who we actually offered someone the job who sent it in. It was so good, and I think if you, it basically was a video that was a mashup of stuff that they'd done about them and then stuff about us as well. Okay. So it really displayed to us. It was like, whoa, this person's got the talents that we need within the CV. So it was like, I feel like if you can, we say it a lot on the show, like if you can go to an employer and say, like, look, I can earn you more money by the skills that I have. Yeah. It's then they can't really say no to that. Because it's an amazing thing I was seeing as well, because what you've done there is you've illustrated the power of something feeling like it's about you. Yeah. And there was an amazing piece of research I was looking at, which was um, which was about the crimes of Rasputin. So Rasputin did all manner of things, but they um, the researchers who were doing it would show people the crimes of Rasputin and what they would do for half of the people, they changed Rasputin's date of birth to being the same as the person reading it. And they asked people what they thought of Rasputin. The people who, oh, same birthday as me. Remarkably, they those people thought Rasputin was half as bad as the any touch of commonality. So if you open a video, you start watching it, and all of a sudden, oh, it's about me. You, you're, we're programmed to innately think, oh, I love this. Yeah. I used to change on my cartoon CV when I started applying for jobs with it, not in record companies. I used to change the first square every time. So and it, well, I would do a drawing of the job I was applying for. So the the ad in the newspaper Smart. and a specific. So it looked like wow, he's done all of this for us. Yeah. I, I hadn't, um, but it was just a way to make it relevant. But I'm not alone. You're not alone. These things are intoxicating, right? If something turns up and it's a video about someone talented and you, it's like wow, you can't help but be awed by that. I mean, one thing, talking to creatives through this show, one thing a lot of people struggle with is marketing themselves. Um, and I think they have this sort of feeling of, I, I love doing this, but me then talking about it is a mm. little bit is a little bit icky um, because I, I, they're like, I don't want to just stand up there and say how great I am. And I said, well, you, you're not really understanding that marketing is not about you. It's about, it's about them and yeah. it's about what you can help them with. And I think it's really important to just to just remember getting across rather than I'm brilliant, here's how I can help you. Yeah. And that's 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 where the magic happens. Yeah. And I think we're we're built to we prefer humility, don't we? As Brits, like Northern Europeans, we prefer humility. We feel really uncomfortable when someone strides into a room and 
starts peacocking their accomplishments. And so those things come so <coughs> uncomfortably, I think, to, to sort of Northern Europeans. But trying to find a bit of a balance where you think, OK, I'm not showboating, but I'm trying to put myself in the best light possible. When we interviewed Marie Forleo recently, she, she came up with this great thing that she was like, if you don't tell people about what you do, you're stealing from them. Because if you've got something that can make their life more fun or solve their problems in some way, for you to then not actually tell them about it is you're stealing from them. I love that. So. Yeah. <laughs> I've just read a book by um, two women. It's sort of uh, it's coming out in January called Squiggly Careers, and it's all about sort of how to improve. Um, uh, Sarah Ellis and Helen Tupper. Helen Tupper, they're yeah. coming on the podcast in a couple okay, of weeks. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. And uh, there's, really, there's one really brilliant book in it, <coughs> bit in it where they talk about. Um, trying to identify what you're good at so consequently you know how to best position yourself and then consequently you can find out the best jobs. And um, and they say, you know, they, they do an exercise where you have to walk around the room and you have to tell someone, I'm good at this, I'm good at this. And one of the things that they caution is innately as Brits and, and not uniquely Brits, but, you know, people who... Um, favour modesty in their society we tend to go i'm quite good at this i'm rel i'm all right at this and their exercise says right you've got to get rid of those qualifiers you've got to say okay when it comes down to it i'm good at illustration you know editing and like you've got to be reductive because otherwise exactly as you said there you're putting a burden on them to do the work mm. and and it's an interesting exercise there's a um i i had a book out this year and and my friend said to me um, you say, oh, right, I've realised what I've done wrong. And he's had th two books out. And he he thought the moment you submitted your manuscript and the book was out, the work was done. And it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, yeah. <laughs> but that's the, basically that's the start line. That's all the prep you've done. And then it's how much you pedal that book. It's how much you go out and promote it. And then, consequently, you do get people contacting you going, wow, I'm so moved by this, I'm really taken with this. But it's, I think it comes uncomfortably to us, but it's an important part of the process, I think. Yeah, the start of our business was really, really sim similar to that, where we knew we had a great product. We knew we had this great thing, but no one knew about it. No yeah. one was coming to us. The phone wasn't ringing. We just sat waiting. Uh, and then we're like, well, let's go and get some people to hear about this then. And that's when we kind of learned about like SEO, marketing, and like getting our name out there. And that was nine years ago and we've still got a business yeah. because of that. And it's unfortunate, isn't it? Because we hear these stories of overnight success or you hear people who've, you know, reached international acclaim or even acclaim in their field overnight. And so you just presume that that's going to happen to anything that you're working on. And the story, the truth is rather more mundane. It's like, you yeah. know, it's normally the people who've put in the legwork who get somewhere. If you build it, they will not come. Yeah, <laughs> resolutely. Yeah. Only if you put up a shit ton yeah. of signs. <laughs> So um, how did the book come about? I started doing a podcast. I um, My favourite thing in the whole world is laughing with the people I work with. And I know that, that sounds so banal and trivial, but if you've ever gone to a job where you don't laugh with the people you work with, you, st you suddenly realise, wow, I valued that so yeah. highly. And the absence of it is, is actually sort of, it's, it's, like, it's not like not feeling love in your life to some extent. There is a, a professor who calls it companionate love when you get on with, with colleagues. Um, and I'd, I'd worked at YouTube in the UK. I've worked like a series of other uh, different places since I started at Capital Radio. And when I uh, helped set up Twitter in the UK, I was really clear, right, I'm going to make this 
in a a workforce, a culture where I wanted to work. And so that was, there were really clear decisions we made early on and we, we tried to, to sort of um, do that. And then somewhere along the way, about four years ago, three years ago, the culture went spectacularly wrong. And, um, and I sat there thinking, right, I need to fix this because I still love my job and I still love the people who work there. But these, it's a bit like you're at a party and you, the party's died, but there's still the same people there. Yeah. Can we get it going again? Yeah. And I don't know if you ever can get parties going again. Maybe you just need to go home. But I was like, I want to see if we can get the party going again. And, um, and I looked for books on it and there was nothing that really gave me the answers. So I started my podcast uh, on a process of self-learning and there's sort of been 95 episodes or something. But they're principally, if I see something I'm interested in, then I do an episode on that. So, you know, 95 episodes over three years. So I guess one every sort of couple of weeks or something. But um, And so while it was number one business podcast, um, the Penguin contacted me saying, would you turn it into a book? And I thought, while, while I actually think uh, podcasts are a better platform than books, if I'm honest, um, and they're more democratic and they're more open. and they're, yeah. um, But uh, I thought, well, look, no one's going to offer me that chance again. So maybe maybe you should take them up on it. And where, I mean, do, do you think you, do you think you solved the problem? Do you think you got the party going again? Um, yeah, well, look, we went from, we had 40% turnover of, of people. So 40% of the company left in one year about three years ago. And it was about two and a half percent last year. And, um, and, you know, while this sort of cultural architect around me, so, so, and these people sort of, I hired and, and they hired and then, um, who I would say day to day contribute more to the culture day to day than I do now, but to sort of managing through other people. But, um, you know, most of the people who, a lot of the people who work at Twitter where I work will say uh, this is my favourite place I've worked. And that's not sort of recency, you know, anyone who's worked somewhere else will go, you know, there's, there's just something special about it, so. What is culture? What is work culture? Yeah, I, I'm sort of thinking about this more and more. I think there's broadly two forms of culture. There's like macro culture, which is big corporate, you know, what are the things, what are the reasons you get promoted around here? What are the sort of the values of the company? That often can be quite nebulous because most people experience culture at the micro culture level, which is normally what's my team like? Yeah. And, you know, you can work at the most enlightened, progressive company in the world where the CEO is a legend and like so many good things. But if your boss is a dickhead, you've got a bad job. And so microculture and macroculture sort of, inter- they operate interdependently a bit. Go on. It goes completely the opposite way as well. Like I know a lot of my friends who've worked in places that they, they hate the job, they hate everything about it, but they've got a great team. Yeah. And they'll stay there because they love their team. Absolutely. And it's like, they don't care that everything else is shit around them because it's like, together in their little bubble, it's all it's okay. This is the big thing. So so what you often find when people talk about um, work and improving work, they'll say, oh yeah, the company needs to build its purpose. 
And you know, okay, so the company needs a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. And exactly as you say, it all comes down to the six people you share a desk with or, you know, the, the eight people that you sit near. That's what actually determines how motivated, how inspired you are in your job. So that's it. I think these sort of big, pur- big purpose, little purpose, big culture, um, macro culture, micro culture. And so my feeling, for example, another thing for you is that um, quite, quite often people say to me, uh, oh, look, you know, we're, we're thinking of trying to improve things around here. What would you advise? And and one charity said to me last year, they said, we've just had, uh, we've just decided to change our culture. We invited everyone to a three-hour kickoff meeting and no one came. And like, and, and I, th- I thought, right, okay, well, here's one of the challenges, yeah. is that modern work just keeps giving more to, for people to do. And so there's something of a burnout epidemic, probably sort of the phrase of the year um, for 2019. And the and people are just overwhelming things. So if you've got that in that context, that environment, then it's very difficult for people to if they're feeling exhausted, if they're getting to the weekend absolutely broken, if getting to Christmas feeling like I, I'm on the verge of collapse, then telling them that you're going to change the culture just feels you know untouchable. You can't yeah. connect with it. And so my feeling was resolutely: there's a lot of things we can do personally. Uh, there's a lot of things that we can do as our teams, and then there's a lot of things sort of bigger than teams as organisations we can do. So that was my feeling. Some of the best things that anyone can do, um, best thing if you want to improve your own energy levels, turn off notifications off on your phone and take a lunch break every day. Now, like very touchable levels, almost mundane levels of, of interventions, but people who turn notifications off on their phone, and look, you can choose, I'm going to leave WhatsApp on. Or, you know, I'm going, I'm going to leave my personal ones on, but my professional ones off. Yeah, because you can as well, on your phone, you can set, like, certain people who, if it's on silent, so right. they will still ring through. Right. So you can still have, like, your important list. Yeah. Admin, though, in it. Anything, any moment that social media or anything to do with our phones feels like it's admin. Mm. It's the reason why Google circles never worked. It's the reason why sort of, you know, groups <laughs> and things don't work because it's admin. We don't want to do any more admin, but I hear you. Um, but turning off notifications on your phone <laughs> is like one of the things where people will say, you know what, I just feel a little bit less anxious because here's yeah, the yeah. fundamental truth. You've got an email waiting for you right now. I guarantee it. You don't need an alert telling you you've got an email. You've got one. You've got one waiting for you. Um, and so turning that off, taking lunch breaks. You know, what we find with lunch breaks is um, that most of us, you know, find we work through lunch because we think it's going to let us leave work earlier, right? Yeah. That's the trade-off we normally do. Um, but actually, one of the things, if you measure people's energy levels, people who take a lunch break every day, their energy levels on Saturday morning are measurably better than people who don't. So then you start thinking, right, so why am I doing this? If I'm doing this to sort of leave myself kebabbed on a Saturday Mm. morning, exhausted, broken, maybe sort of reaching for carbs, caffeine, alcohol, to try and sort of redeem my, my energy levels, then if you just tried to get a bit more balance during the week, that equilibrium can be a bit more restored. So, you know, they don't necessarily feel like things related to work culture, but I think they all contribute to our experience of work. So how do you go from a 40% turnover rate to a 2%? Um, lots of little things. You know, I think probably the biggest issue we had was a a um, 
a breach of trust when you ever make people redundant whenever you sort of you so some of the people chose to leave some of the people a very small number we uh, we had to make them redundant and so what happens there is the, the buzzword that people might use business psychologists might talk about psychological safety and psychological safety is this is, is about the transactional analysis that goes on between you and other people. So psychological safety is your ability to speak truth to power, your ability to be honest with your colleagues, your ability to be honest with your boss, and vice versa. And what you find is the best performing, performing relationships, it might be a client relationship. If you can tell your client, I really disagree with your opinion on that, actually what you find is the, the work gets better. Mm-hmm. And the relationship gets better. And, and we all know it instinctively. That, that friend that you're able to tell honest, hard truths to, your relationship with them is, so a, is massively yeah. better than that person you're like, oh, I don't know how to tell her. I don't know how to tell her. Yeah. Right, psychological safety is the underpinning. But the challenge with psychological safety is that innately we sort of, we, we're self-protecting. So if you find that if you tell something to your boss and there's a consequence... You won't tell your boss again. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're in somewhere and you trust that the company's going to be okay, and then all of a sudden, you know, 10% of your colleagues are fired, people are like, okay, they didn't tell me the truth. Yeah. So one of the most fundamental things is how do you rebuild psychological safety? And that generally is about over-communicating, telling people transparently, saying, look, I want to be candid with you. If we get to there, we're going to be okay. If we don't get to there, just, you know that's at the point we're going to have to be thinking about these things again, which can create a sense of peril. But it's I, I think it's about trying to be a bit more transparent and honest with people. Because, because when that does work, people can feel, okay, I know, I know that this is an honest relationship, even mm-hmm. if we're in a difficult time. It's been a massive lesson for us. I mean, obviously, our, we've got a smaller team, but... Um, I mean, an example that, that really sticks out in my head is there was a point where we lost a member of staff who we had plans to greatly promote and give a lot more responsibility and a lot more to. And we just had those discussions as management, I... me, Adam and our business partner, Yana. And we'd been talking about how great this person was and how much we wanted her to like grow within the company and, and be in this, this more like this more authoritative position. But we didn't tell her. And it's just, and then when you lose that member of staff and you say, oh, but we were going to do this and they go, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. but, but you. It's, in, it's an interesting thing about people relationship work because normally the, the first question that's always worth asking about any sort of relationship at work, when things go wrong, when someone's being managed out, fired, is like you ask the question, have you told someone directly how you feel? Because normally what happens is no one tells someone directly. They find a reason to make someone's role redundant or they, they'd like, they, but have you told them directly? And so, you know, just telling people directly that degree of candor seems to be quite helpful. You mentioned at the, at the beginning there that one of your favorite things to do is laugh with the, with the team. You've actually looked into the actual science of laughter, haven't you? Yeah, largely because I used to know someone who said, now's not the time to be seen laughing. And, you know, so if you're working in an environment like we all are, where there's targets, where there's like a number on the wall, like like you've got to be thinking about what's our year end looking like. We need to bring in three more bits of business, then we're good. And uh, in in bad times, someone, uh, someone I work with said, look, you know, really important. Can you tell your team now's not the time to be seen laughing? And it really sort of indelibly stuck in my head. And so while I was going through this process of 
reading academic papers and trying to understand this. I really, and I sort of found myself going down wormholes. So anytime I saw something that referenced another paper about that, I'd write that down and I'd go and read that paper. And what you discover about laughter is that laughter is this, um, it's this understudied and underappreciated thing. If you consider, it's like sleep, how much we pre- we love doing it. But um, the the leading expert on laughter, a guy called Robert Provine, he said that there's somewhere in the region of about 70,000 papers, academic papers, peer-reviewed papered, papers on anxiety and depression. And there's around 125 on laughter. And it's because anytime someone does work on this, people regard it as trivial, frivolous, waste of time. Haven't you got anything real to do? Even in the world of science. He he came to the conclusion, though. They're having a laugh. Right. <laughs> but he came to the conclusion. Two, two really interesting things. First one, he de- describes laughter as um, we need to think of it as an impoverished human bird song meaning that we generally laugh to signal connection with other people. So we, so if, the way you'd observe this is next time you go to your <laughs> team meeting, watch what the laughter's about, and you'll generally observe, he found, it wasn't after things that were spectacularly funny to outsiders. They were sort of trigger points where people felt they could laugh, but more than anything, they weren't laughing at something that was hilarious. They're laughing to signal connection. Bird yeah. song, birds sing to, to forge connection. And then he sort of um, he, he sort of observed that we generally use laughter as a sort of means of, um, of sort of connecting, but it's also incredibly powerful at building our resilience. So you know, there's a there's a, a guy who's made his life's work study of survivors, like a guy called Lawrence Gonzalez. And survivors are okay. A plane crashes somewhere. One person survives. One person scrambles out of the jungle. Someone gets lost in the desert. Which person survives? You know, these sort of these a whole series of people. Whether it's whatever landscape you can imagine, ever a terrain. And uh, he looks through the things that characterise the the way they survive. And one of the things that is the one of the top traits is they never took their situation too seriously. So they'd describe, you know, yeah, I was lost in the Pacific for three months, but I used to laugh every day about what a mess I was in. You know, like, and um, there's a really interesting thing. If you dump some people in the in the jungle, six-year-old kids are more likely to survive than wannabe bear grills. Why? Because they're sort of, they've got an a innocentness, a an open-mindedness, a sort of silliness they're far more likely little kids are far more likely to survive than people who got a plan they're going to solve this they're going to hack their way through it but the people who the adults who survive are the ones who say you know every day i sat there thinking what a mess you know and i laughed to myself about it laughter helps reset our stresses it helps build our resilience so then you start thinking so why have we if, if laughter makes us feel connected with each other, it makes us feel like things aren't going to be so bad after all. You know, you, you have a look, whether it's people I chatted to, people in the SAS, people who worked in hospitals, they would say, we use laughter. You know, I chatted to a fireman who described a scene where he said, you know, I remember one day at work where we were picking body parts up off a train track and we were all doing quite black humour, quite dark humour about it. He said... You know, if my missus saw that, she would be deeply ashamed of me. But I think it was just our way of coping with what was going on. It's not really interesting. Laughter is this incredible elixir that seems to reset us and make us more connected. And so on the basis of that, you start going, 
So why don't we set about trying to bring more laughter into our workplaces? And that Robert Provine guy, the guy, the expert, he says, it's not hard, but you just need to build occasions that celebrate laughter. So it might be your team meeting. Is there something for five minutes every week where you just want to call out, here's something that, you know, a funny thing that happened last week or the email of the week or the, you know, something that's easily doable. We, the way we do it at Twitter, we, we, um, we end our Friday afternoon tea time meeting, 4.30 on a Friday. But we, we end that with um, just Twitter stories. So stories related to something funny or moving or affecting that's happened on Twitter that week. And, you know, quite often it's, it's incredibly trivial, but it's built around something funny that's happened. And um, it's probably our biggest contributor to people feeling like they enjoy their jobs. So I know all of that seems silly. It's, you know, if, if someone says to you, we're going to get together, and all we're going to do is laugh. You go, OK, well, don't need to do that. Like, we'll eliminate that. And what you realise pretty quickly is, is you, it's come at the expense of taking some of the humanity out of people's interactions with each other. Work is so serious, isn't it? We we portray it as this. I'm going to work, and I suppose, and maybe it is a more British thing of of sort of. I, in my head, as soon as I said that, I started picturing bowler hats and umbrellas and all marching in a line to across London Bridge, and it it just has always been portrayed as the place where you go to where your dreams go to die. You're just yeah. oh, I'm in sitting in my work yeah. on my desk, grey. The stats on it are that um, Gallup runs this workforce survey, which has sort of become a cash cow for theirs. But they run this global workforce survey. So they're an opinion polling firm, but they run this survey, seeing the levels of engagement that people have with their jobs. And uh, UK workers are 13% engaged in their jobs. American workers are about 30%, so we're significantly below the US. The lowest in the world is France, which is 3% of French workers are engaged in their jobs. But our figure, 13%, there's twice as many people who report themselves being actively disengaged in their job, meaning they want to sort of bring the downfall of their, their organisation. Twice as many of them, the people who are engaged in their job. Next time you sit on the train in the morning, glance around the carriage, there's twice as many people who are going to work to bring about the, the overthrow <laughs> of their evil boss as there are thinking, I'm really inspired with making my company a success. And so... You do sit there and go, why, what are the reasons why we feel so disengaged in our job? Largely, it comes down to control. If you feel like nothing you do will have an impact, you start giving up. You know, If you feel like everything I suggest to my boss, okay, I tried that once, I got nowhere, you stop making suggestions. You just think, okay, what does my boss want to hear? It becomes a performance of... Okay, well, you know, every time I have a meeting with her, she just wants this, so I'm just going to do that. And, and we remove any sense of agency out of, of people. One of the interesting things is if you look at stress levels of workers, we always associate the boss having a heart attack or, you know, like the sort of the stress at the top. Stress inversely correlates with, um, with power. So people in power generally has left a lot less stress. You know, if you look at their body language... Body language of people in power is, is sort of is, is dominant. It's it's the people at the bottom who are the meek, the cleaners, the people who are the, the support staff. They're the people who have the highest levels of stress. It's just not that's not how we associate it. That's not the story we tell ourselves. And so how can you get those people to feeling like 
their contribution matters. How can you give them a degree of agency in, into their jobs? That's, that's the big question. So there's a level of security as well, because those people kind of towards the lower end, they think like if they do something wrong that they could, they're like they're going to get fired or something. Yeah. Um, whereas the people higher up, I feel a lot more confident absolutely. in their roles. Yeah, absolutely. It comes down to that. The um, it's sort of if if you believe that there's going to be massive consequences if you get something wrong, the absence of psychological safety, then of course you you just do what's safe. You end up with it being a jobs worth, you know. Yeah. So since eighty-seven percent of the UK are currently unhappy in their jobs, what can their employees do? Number one thing that anyone that will transform anyone's experience of work is their manager. So generally, the truism that people say is they say people don't resign from a job; they resign from a manager, um, and it's almost invariably the case. Someone's experience. A friend of mine calls it the line manager lottery. You know, like if you've, you can have two teams of people sitting next to each other, one group of people, exactly what you said earlier, one group of people can say, I love my job. They might not love the product they're working on, they might not love the specifics of it, but they love something about this, the camaraderie they've got. A team next to them will say, I hate, I hate this company, I hate this organisation, I hate my team. And so, you know, it's the experience of, of bosses. So understanding a bit how you can feel less overwhelmed by your job yourself and that's, you know, taking a lunch break has a really big impact. Yeah. Sort of getting a good night's sleep. Good night's sleep is the single biggest thing that anyone can do to improve their happiness. Um, so doing those things. And then I personally feel, you know, the, the reason why I wrote my book is because I thought, okay, bosses don't read books like this. But mm -hmm. if someone's got a team away day coming up and, you know, the boss is looking for agenda items, you might say... Um, I wonder if we could discuss this, photocopy this, 10 pages, and then maybe we could have a discussion how we could improve our team setup. And the amount of people who contact me going, we've changed something we do as a team, uh, we've introduced that, we've our new rule is this. You know, there's one thing in there in, in my book that I talk about this um the receptionist in one advertising agency, creative agency, said to them, you know, this is the worst culture I've ever worked in. And like no one talks to each other. Everyone's walking around really earnestly. You know, like everyone looks really stressed. Um, and there just seemed to be no human connection between them. Mm. She said, she just went out, she bought six cans of Pringles, six bags of kettle chips. And she, she sent an email around the office going, good news, everyone. It's the best time of the week. It's crisp Thursday. And, uh, and everyone came and sort of sat down and had these crisps. And uh, it, be it became a weekly ritual. And it became the thing that they, they actually, they would sit and chat to each other, uh, each other. And sometimes there was a few beers, sometimes there was Prosecco. But, you know, it was just Chris Thursday was the thing. I chatted to someone last week. He said, yeah, we've introduced it as is called Tuesday Cup of Tea. And he, Tuesday at 10.30, we all stop and have a cup of tea. And he said, you know, sometimes when people are slammed, we move it to Thursday. But we always sit and have a cup of tea. And it's just, we sit as a group and we all talk about just you know, what's going on? How's, and he said, it's transformed the way we all connect with each other. Mm. Because I think it's that sort of beware the busy managers, the old is the old phrase. But, you know, when everyone's dashing around everywhere, you, we sometimes lose sight of what we're actually doing and why we're doing it. And that moment of connecting in a human level seems to, ha seems to be far more impactful than we might superficially think it would be. Yeah, I think like one of my biggest observations with like 
people that I, like my friends and stuff who are in different job roles and their problems with their industry is I feel like most people, so the way businesses, well, careers generally go is people are in it for a certain amount of years and they get promoted and then they get promoted and then they end up being the manager of other of people. But they're not there because they're good at managing. They're there because that's just what, there's nowhere else for them to go within that business and they yeah. don't want to lose them. Um, and I feel like there's not, most places don't have the training there to be like, hey, well, you are now managing people. You need to go and learn how to manage people and yeah. how to kind of cultivate that team. Yeah. Do you know is, the Peter Principle? No. The Peter Principle is the idea that everyone is is promoted to their to their level of incompetence. So you're promoted through all the jobs you're good at and the job you stay in is the one you're not very good at. So generally, you've got loads of people who are managers, who are bad managers, mm-hmm. and they're never going to get promoted out of that because they're not good enough to get promoted. It's so the Peter Principle. Like, the whole of the workforce is filled with people who can't do the job they're now yeah. in. And it's, it's, that, it's that idea. Because I suppose the longer your business is running, higher your like, top team of managers are just all useless because they can't get higher and they're not like they're just not good managers mm. yeah <laughs> yeah um i wonder is there do you think there's a correlation between the school system and how work how how we're working nowadays um i i look you know i think school obsessively in the uk prioritizes tick box achievements and, and accomplishments you know anyone who comes to the uk obviously work in a very international office and anyone who becomes a parent in the uk will always say wow the amount of homework that uk school kids have unfortunately because the sort of the agenda of what we should do in those situations is driven by you know newspapers that are intent on trying to point that something's wrong um I, I don't know. The, the I think the system thinking that goes on there. There's a lot of really brilliant, enlightened teachers. I think they're normally working in bureaucracies. And the moment, as I said before, the moment people have got no control, the moment like, okay, if I was allowed to do this, I think I could do a really good job here. But I'm instructed that on Thursday I need to be doing this and this and this and this. And we remove that sense. I think it's like we're we're trying to prevent prevent the worst bottom results but the it's at the expense of the whole system's lowered in quality slightly but i think britain we're not alone in in biasing for maybe the wrong things there um you mentioned in the book that on average people are getting about 200 emails a day what's your number um it's use not slack here it's not too no we don't use slack okay. no um but it's definitely not 200 and i don't think because it's quite a small studio, I think most communication is done via the team in person yeah. and they will just have a chat to each other rather than over email. Um, but we're obviously overwhelmed at work with all of this information and all of these emails and everything. Um, what steps can people take to not let this take over their life? The really interesting lesson is what you've described there. Um, because when you got teams in that sort of environment where they can shout over to each other what you find is that degree of connection means that firstly the amount of interconnections that you've got are far smaller than if you put that same team in a floor of 200 people and you know you're the creative team in a big corporate environment immediately then the number of relationships that everyone needs to maintain grow exponentially and i think that's the critical thing we've quite often thought as companies that putting people in bigger places optimizing for communication can everyone just keep everyone else in the loop um 
and it, it produces an exhaustion. So people generally report, it's back to that theme of saying, people report if they're in a good team, if they feel like they've got a good job, if they feel like their team is small and manageable, that experience is generally much happier. Um, so it's just, I, my personal feeling is trying to reduce the amount of meetings that people people find themselves in. Average Brit spends two days a week in meetings. Every single person I chat to who's in even a medium-sized company says I spend way more than that in meetings. Like I, I meet so many people who say my job is I'm in meetings all day, every day. Unbelievable. That's what we've created as a job. And it's then, you know, you have that remarkable thing where you think, I wonder what would happen if those people stopped either doing those meetings or doing that job. Would would things stop? Um, yeah, so it's just about trying to have an awareness. We've spent a lot of time at Twitter copying something from Amazon, which is Amazon have most of their meetings as silent meetings. And we do it a lot. So the, the way that we do it is if you've got a laptop, we do it where we use Google Docs. We're, we'll all either input our contributions, which is like no, no more than five sentences into that week's Google Doc. Everyone reads it in silence. They annotate anything that they're interested in. Um, as an exchange of information, like one of my main, main meetings got 10 people in it. As an exchange of information, it normally takes 10 minutes. You feel much more connected with what's going on in France. You feel much more connected of what's going on in Germany. Um, and then we have discussion about the themes there. And so we've sort of evolved that. And I think that's the critical thing. Email really hasn't evolved in 30 years. Meetings are this format that we, we remember some good meetings we've had. And maybe, you know, in your small organisation, you're still able to have really energising client meetings. Client meetings can be brilliant. Um, but just trying to be honest about we need to reduce these things that are actually the ballast that are holding, making the, the whole experience of work feel so exhausting. Yeah, I, I think with us, we try and be brave um, and not afraid, especially when it comes to clients. So... A very frequent request is, can you come and look at the wall? And most walls are pretty similar. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I and I think there's just there's just. Firstly, I think they want to meet you, and which I totally understand. But I think there's just there, there's just some sort of need of the feeling of safety of once mm. I've shown you the wall, you will then be able to paint it properly. And so we have to be brave and say, oh, could you send us a photo of the wall? I'm sure. I'm sure we'll manage. Yeah. I'm sure, it'll be okay. Um, but I think that's that's one thing we're we're sort of not. We try not to get wrapped up in in their systems and just go. No, this is how we do it. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's a bit like, like anytime you're going to speak somewhere, someone says, "Can we jump on a call?" Like I willingly willingly jump on a call, but what are we going to achieve on that call? If you're mm. just going to read me that email, <laughs> email. Yeah. I've read the email. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, absolutely true. Um, so a lot of our audience are freelancers and maybe not working in a team. Um, what sort of advice do you have for someone who's working on their own to be happier in work? Yeah, more than anything, it's about trying to create some rules, some some lines. And I think, you know, one of the things that's delightful about being freelance and, and not being encumbered by sort of the nine to five is that ability to de design things on the fly. But I think having some guidelines and some barriers where you switch work on and off can be helpful. So one of the really interesting things is that if you look into how 
creativity takes place. What well, I found this really fascinating. So if you look into sort of the most rudimentary neuroscience, they would say neuroscience is really interesting science, by the way. It's like it's about of any degree of sophistication, it's really kicked off in 1999. Like that's where brain scanning actually degree, reached a degree of sophistication. Till then, the majority of neuroscience was done on animals and on people returning from the war. Why? Because if someone's lost half of their brain, very quickly you can observe, like, oh, that's really Im- impacted his behaviour in this way. It's sort of it's accidents, and that that was how it was it was done. Anyway, over the last twenty years, the the scanning on it has, has rapidly improved. And the one thing they've observed is there seems to be three systems that run our brain. Uh, three systems of cognition. First one is called the executive attention network. That's you on your laptop typing away. You're, that's what you're focused on. Then there's the salience network. So that's while you're typing on your laptop, you're in a room and you're just making sure the room's safe and it's, sort of, it's just protecting you to your force field. Mm-hmm. The third one, though, is called the default mode. And in brain scans, they were just fascinated with why did these other areas of the brain light up the moment you stopped doing something? And then they'd sort of like be ping, tinging, tingling away while you weren't doing something. And they'd say to people, what are you experiencing now? And people say, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, I was... I was bored. I was just, I wasn't even thinking about anything. It was unfocused. And the really interesting thing, relevant for anyone who's a freelancer or is required to come up with sort of ideas, it's, uh, we, we appear to have our best ideas, not when we're sitting in a state of intense focus of concentration, but we're in a, when we're in a state of unfocus, when we're in a state of boredom, our screensaver's up, we're drifting off. And so, you know, if someone's a freelancer, then thinking about... Okay, where's my default mode? Where's the moments where I'm actually giving myself a, a downbeat? And th- the way you'll you'll see this most readily is someone said to me, I get all my best ideas walking my dog. Someone said to me, you know, I get my best ideas staring out of Emma Gannon said to me, I get all my best ideas staring out of a plane window. Um, uh, the, my favorite example of it is the the guy who wrote. Uh, a Few Good Men, Moneyball, The West Wing, like a really famous screenwriter called Aaron Sorkin. He realised he was having all his best ideas, not at his desk, not at his laptop, but in the shower. So he says he, he had a shower installed in the corner of his office, he has six to eight showers a day. <laughs> Amazing. Really interesting, right? Yeah. So people who are sort of measuring when they're coming up with their best ideas are actually noticing that it's not at the time when they're in a state of intense focus, but rather when they're allowing their brain. So, you know, if you're a freelancer, knowing that downtime is really important to you, people say this to me. They say, you know, I went on holiday, I had so many good ideas. Why? Because we've stopped putting so many inputs in. We've stopped sort of looking at our screen. We've stopped... I love my screen, but like stopped loading so much stuff in. And what happens then is it's recumbent ideas, like ideas connecting with each other in their heads. Good ideas come from that. But you need to sort of activate that default mode to really put yourself in the position to do it. So, you know, what I would say is people saying, look, Wednesday afternoon is my day I don't work, my afternoon I don't work. I, you know, I generally don't check my emails on this day. And trying to create those... Um, those borderlines, they might seem a bit bureaucratic, but I suspect they help unlock a bit more sense of balance, really. Amazing. Um, My main, like one of the main things that really stuck out for me in the book, and I thought it was absolutely incredible, was when you talk about how a young child who's been 
told negative things by four years old will have heard, I can't remember the exact stat, but will have heard so many thousands more negative words um, from a low income family than someone with privilege who, and just the, I mean, you can probably explain it better than I'm. It's so, it's so incredibly depressing, isn't it? I think the numbers were something like, by the age of four, a child from a low-income family will have heard 52,000 more negative words than positive words. And a rich kid will have heard 100,000 more positive words than, than negative. The balance, the skew of it is so extraordinary. It's, it's heartbreaking because, you know, the things we discover are... Um, the the words that we hear and the language we we in, understand strongly impact our emotions and our emotional depth. It's a really interesting and strange thing, and it always reminds me I need to be a better person. In that people who read novels um, experience a wider range of emotions than people who don't. You know that you know that old thing that we used to talk about the the Inuits, the Eskimos having a hundred words for snow. Mm. But if you've got a hundred words for your emotions. You're able to, it, you literally become more able to identify different emotions. You know, if you only know anger, rage, happiness, then reductively those become the, the emotions you experience. If you read about this depth of nuance that people felt happy but sad, it, it actually unlocks that emotion for us. Really interesting phenomenon. So the words that we experience seem to be so magical in terms of creating our experience of life. It made so much sense to me because I just, I mean, we've spoken before about how when we first met, I was sort of, would always look at the negative side of things and I would always be looking to, to I would always be pointing out the, the imminent failure that was heading towards us and that we couldn't, that we couldn't avoid. And, and then through reading that, it just, it just made sense. Mm. Um, and then, and then through just training myself and speaking to myself, being more kind to myself and changing the, the language that is in my life and making it more positive. And, and under that umbrella comes consuming more positive content um, has just made me like a happier person, a person who looks for the good in things rather, yeah. than, the, rather than the negative. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of it's like treating it like computer code to some extent, isn't it? And I can understand, I can understand why people get sceptical about positive psychology and, and sceptical about that sort of, that trying to program the happy into us. Mm. But there seems to be some substance. Look, you know, number, number one thing, as I mentioned before, is to be happier, is to sleep more. Number two way to be happier is to spend time with happier people. And... I don't make the rules. That's just like the, the evidence is if you spend time around positive, happy people, then you become po more positive and happier. And like exactly that, we do seem to become the sum total of what we consume and the people we spend time with. Look, we can't change it. It seems to be unarguable from the evidence. But I think as long as you're aware of it, it starts making you think, OK, so even if we're having psychological safety, even if we're having a candid discussion about how things are bad, Let's make sure we celebrate what we're enjoying, you know, the moments, the people we're, we're doing it with, trying to sort of at least draw some uh, satisfaction from the experience, if not the, the outcome. So on that wonderfully happy note, uh, where can people find you online? Um, so my website is 
Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, sort of the um, the name of my podcast. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, I'm, clearly I work at Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Unless you're interested in pop music, uh, tennis or green politics, I suspect <laughs> you won't find much for you on my Twitter account. Thanks, Thank so Thanks so much for listening. If you get any value from these episodes, it would mean the world to us if you could share the podcast with someone who needs it. You can always reach out to us on Instagram at rebelscreate or head over to creativerebels.co. And remember, always be creating. See ya.